welcome to the Grow My Salon Business podcast, where we focus on the business side of hairdressing. I'm your host, Anthony Whitaker, and I'll be talking to thought leaders in the hairdressing industry, discussing insightful, provocative, and inspiring ideas that matter. So get ready to learn, get ready to be challenged, get ready to be inspired, and most importantly, get ready to grow your salon business. Hey everyone, and welcome to today's podcast. I want to start off with a shout out to at Sansone76, who gave us another five-star review on Apple Podcast. They said, thank you, Anthony, for managing to create one of the best podcasts for our hair industry with an array of wonderful guests. It's truly inspiring. If you're a salon owner, freelancer, rented chair, salon suite owner, graduate stylist, or an apprentice coming into the industry, this is a must listen. So thank you, at Sansone76. We really appreciate your endorsement. Now, if you too would like to rate and review us, just go to Apple Podcasts, scroll to the bottom of the page, and select Ratings and Reviews. We would be very appreciative as it makes it easier for other people to find us. So, on with today's show. Now, my good friend Vivian McKinder reached out to me and suggested that she did a podcast takeover and that I be the guest on the Grow My Salon Business podcast. So, for a change, I'm on the other side of the microphone being grilled. Now, I'm recording this intro after the podcast was done because I had no idea what Vivian was going to ask me beforehand. So, in today's podcast, we discussed what are some of the things that all my podcast guests have had in common personal reinvention and finding your niche in this industry, the importance of understanding your brand, what are the myths around salon ownership, and what might be the successful business model of the future, and lots more. So, without further ado, I am passing you over to a friend and today's host of the podcast, Vivian McKinder. Well, Anthony, it's such an exciting moment for me to be able to interview you because you have worked with so many iconic hairdressers as a host of your podcast. You've worked with some of the most amazing hairdressers in the world in your coaching program. And I was curious to know the impact that these extraordinary people have had upon you and what has been the greatest influence through your journey working with people at this iconic level. Um. Okay, so I, I think the thing that, that most of them, if not all of them, have in common is how grounded they are, humility, that, that they, um, you know, they don't sort of see themselves as, as someone who has, you know, arrived and that they're uh, better and bigger than everybody else, that they, um, you know, that they sort of acknowledge their success, but, but, they, but they don't dwell on it, generally speaking. They're sort of dwelling on the what's next? How can I do this better? And I think that that, that question, how can I do this better, is a really important thing that drives uh, a lot of people forward. It definitely drives me forward. It always has. Um, and so even if they don't, you know, consciously sort of ask themselves that question, how can I do this better? It, it sort of permeates their very essence, if that makes sense. Yes, it does. And um, when you look at successful people, there was a great quote I read a long time ago by John Maxwell, who said that he, you know, he always failed forward and he was mindful to try and fall on his bottom so he could stand up. Um, with all the great people that you've interviewed and worked with, are there any that have never failed? They have been so successful and it's been success after this success or have they failed forward? pick themselves up and say, well, that didn't work, so I'm going to try harder or differently and move forward again. Yeah, I think that is 
a core ingredient of everybody who succeeds is that they that they do fail and they acknowledge their, their, their failings, but they don't dwell on them. You know, for some people, when they fail at something, they, um, they give up straight away. Uh, I, I, I've got a great acronym I use in my seminars, which is uh, FAIL uh, stands for First Attempt at Learning. And I know when I first saw that, I thought, wow, that's a, that's a really good way to talk about failing, that it's not, it's not over. It is a step in the process. And so, you know, no matter who I think of with all the people that I've worked with and the people that I've interviewed, um, they all acknowledge, you know, that they've different things they've done haven't worked. Um, and they pick themselves up, dust themselves off and get back on with it. And, and I'm certainly like that as well. Um, you know, one of the people I, I interviewed who uh, recently, um, an editorial hairdresser, Guido, who, who you and I have spoken about. Um, I mean, I, I just think that Guido is just an, an, an incredible talent. I think he is the, the number one, you know, editorial hairdresser. I, I mean, I'm going to use the word artist, and I actually don't like using the word artist uh, when I'm talking about hairdressers as a generalization. Um, because I think in reality, there's probably only about a dozen hairdressers that you'd probably give that that title to. Um, uh, and he would certainly be one of them. He is a true, absolute artist. And, you know, all you need to do is to look at his his Instagram and, you know, the books that he publishes and all that. And, and he's just amazing. I mean, he's a genius with hair. And uh, uh, I, I've always looked at his work over the years and, and just, you know, sort of without failure. Everything you see that's published, you just look at it and go, oh, my God, you know. He just nails it again and again and again and again, you know. But, you know, when I was talking to him, I mean, I, the interview was, was, was so good. Uh, I mean, you know, Guido was at Sassoon when I was at Sassoon in the in the 80s. So we had a little bit of history to catch up on. And, you know, we talked for ages. Then we started recording. And then we talked afterwards. And I'm never sure what was in the recording and what was sort of left on the cutting room floor that we were talking about before or after. But, you know, one of the things that I, I said to him is, you know, talking about this very thing, I said, so, you know, do you, do you – like, do you nail it every time? And he was like, he just laughed. And he went, of course I don't. You just never see the things that I, that, that are disasters. And there's plenty of them. And he's incredibly humble about what he does. And this sort of, you know, goes full circle to really what your opening question was about really successful people. You know, he said something which, um, you know, I think a lot of people like me, I mean, unashamedly, I look at him and I, I, uh, I admire what he does enormously. Um, and there's that part of you that goes, oh, my God, I wish I could do that. But then, you know, talking to him, he was saying how there is no way that he could get on a stage and do haircuts in front of audiences. Like, and talk to people. There's just no way he could do that. And yet you do that all day long. I do that all day long. I mean, I don't cut hair anymore. But, you know, we all have our genius. We all have our gift. We all have the thing that we can do. And we should never... Um, you know, we should never put ourselves down or feel lesser than someone else because they do something better because everybody has things that they can and do do better than anybody else. And that's really what it's all about. It's about, you know, f finding your, your genius. And, and, you know, there's, there's, a, there's an amazing quote that just came to me then. It's, uh, most people think of it as a uh, Nelson Mandela quote. And I don't have this quote in my head word for word, but it's actually not a Nelson Mandela quote. It was actually uh, Marianne Williamson 
the author wrote this quote and, and it was uh, adapted, shall we say, for Nelson Mandela's inauguration speech. And the, the famous line in it is about, you know, not hiding your light, not being afraid to, to shine your light on your greatness, that you don't do, you know, the world any favors by, by being small about what you are and what you've achieved. And um, I can see you typing away. I hope you're Googling it to get the exact words, but it, it is just the perfect quote. And, uh, you know, I remember once I did a seminar and someone had handwritten it out while the seminar was in process, while I was talking. And she came up to me at the end and, and just gave me this piece of paper that she'd written it on in pencil with really bad handwriting and stuff. But she, she gave it to me with like absolute humility. And it was like, it was one of the greatest things that anyone had ever given me. Like, because it was an acknowledgement of an, of an impact, of an, of an effect that I'd had on someone in my audience. And ultimately, that's what you try and do, you know, whether it's by standing behind a chair cutting hair, whether that's your audience or, or whether it's me with, you know, whether it's 10 people or 1,000 people in front of you, it's, you're trying to have an impact on someone. And, and, and that's what she meant when she, you know, gave me that, that piece of paper with that, you know, scrawled message on um, where she'd obviously either memorized that quote or she'd probably gone online at the time and had copied it out, whatever it was, you know, it, it was still a very, you know, powerful moment for me and sort of sums up the essence of what we're talking about. Yes. And, you know, it, it reminds me of when I was uh, years ago uh, doing a, a photo shoot and this model on set was 16 years old and the photographer was asking her to kind of relax and be more natural, not be too staged, to be herself, to be authentic. And she turned around to me and I'll never forget this. She said, it takes a lot of practice to be yourself. And I thought, oh, my goodness, all the photographer wants is for her authenticity to shine. And she's trying to stage and be something else. Yeah, and I yeah. think that when you interview these incredible people that you do, and I'm so thankful that you have your podcast so that we can all learn from it. And the Guido one was extraordinary. And it, it really hit me about that the authenticity and also the myth and the misconception about mastery, because we mm -hmm. see the end result, but we don't go behind the scenes or we're often we're not allowed behind the scenes to see the struggles, to see the challenges, to see the failures. So we judge and measure the mastery, not understanding that you've got to roll up your sleeves and you've got to be smart about what you're doing, stay in your lane and actually give it your all, but work your strengths, not work to your failures. And I think that's the biggest reveal that I get as a listener going, wow, don't feel bad that you don't want to be in a salon anymore, Vivian, because your career is going in another direction and don't feel guilty about it. Instead, take that inspiration that you have and be the best you can as you reinvent yourself, just like you did. So that leads to I don't know how many of your um, followers know about your background story. So I think it'd be nice to go into the background story, but I'd like to start off by knowing what did you want to be when you were a kid? <laughs> I, it changed from week to week. There was never any really serious intention. Um, I can remember at one you know, one week I wanted to be a, um, a PE teacher because my PE teacher at secondary school was a pretty cool guy. And I just remember thinking, I want to be a PE teacher. And, and, you know, uh, 
I was actually at home that evening or, or you know, very shortly after that, that sort of eureka moment. And I was washing the dishes with my mom and she said to me, so what are you going to do when you leave school? And I said, uh, I want to be a PE teacher. And I was probably 15 at the time or something. And, uh, and she said, well, you won't be able to do that. Um, because that would mean you have to go to university and, and we can't afford for you to go to university. You have to get out there and, and earn a living. And it, it was a, you know, I, I've got uh, four brothers and two sisters and my brothers and sisters are all, you know, well, they're, they're not all there, but, but they're craftsmen, they're tradespeople. And so that was my journey. And my dad was a tradesman. He was a, a French polisher and had his own business. And, you know, as kids growing up, we often worked with him. So it was sort of like, that it had never occurred to me. I mean, it occurred to me we were broke. I mean, you know, we, we had a lot of love, but we never had any money. I mean, there was no, it wasn't even on the agenda that you could, you could go to university uh, for me. And so, you know, that, that was sort of a moment where I sort of started to reflect on, well, there's certain things I can do and certain things that are just off the table. You know, like, uh, uh, as I said, it was a, it was a, um, a PE teacher that week. I can remember, you know, at another point in time, it was being an architect. Um, uh, at another point in time, it was being a, you know, a God knows what, but like, you know, it, it, it was a reality at a moment in time that I thought, well, I'm not going to be able to do lots of things. And so it was about, well, well, what trade am I going to do? And, you know, one of my brothers was a, was a panel beater. And another one of my brothers is a, uh, uh, a painter decorator. Um, another one of my brothers, uh, was a, a, a car upholsterer at the time. Um, my dad, like I say, was a French polisher. So I was sort of destined to go into these, you know, sort of blokey, um, you know, a craft, a trade. And I worked with my dad for a couple of years and, you know, um, I mean, I love my dad dearly about working with him was never really going to work out long term. <laughs> um, you know, so I, I sort of fell into hairdressing. You know, it was, uh, it was never any great plan. Uh, I once worked out, I had something like 17 jobs from when I left school to when I started hairdressing and I left school at 15 and I started hairdressing at 21. So, you know, uh, you wouldn't exactly call me stable. Um, and so hairdressing was the first bit of stability that, um, you know, that I, that I really got into. And you did your early training in New Zealand, is that correct? Yeah, I, I started. Uh, there was actually a guy I went to school with who was a salon owner, a hairdresser. He was a couple of years older than me. He was a friend of my brother's. And uh, he was cutting my hair one day, and, and he offered me a job. So I started working for him for a couple of years. And very quickly, I loved it. I loved, you know, the craft. I loved the people component. And, um, you know, I, I, when I'm in, in the past, when I've been asked this question as to how I got into hairdressing, I instantly reflect on uh, this careers counsellor that my mum sent me to. Um, and I really didn't want to go. She was a, a government, you know, careers counsellor. And I went there as a 20-year-old, 21-year-old, and because I had lots of jobs. And she said to me, uh, what do you want to do for a job? Now, bear in mind, at this point in time, I'm a 20-year-old smart aleck who has gone to see this woman because my mum has told me to, not because I want to be there. And she said to me, what do you want from a job? And I said, I don't know what I want to do for a job. If I did, I wouldn't be here. And she said, she gave me a verbal telling off, basically. She said, I didn't say, what do you want to do for a job? I said, what do you want from a job in your wildest dreams? And the way she said it, you know, like she was a, a rather sort of matronly woman, you know, and she was telling me off. And, uh, 
so I sort of thought I'll give her back as good as she's given me. And so I, I gave her this fairy tale list of attributes that appealed to me. Now, bear in mind, I'd had 17 jobs, you know, so I'd done a lot of stuff I didn't like. And so I said, well, I want a, a job where I work inside. Uh, I don't want to get my hands dirty. Uh, I don't want to be sat at a desk. Um, I want to meet people, preferably girls. Um, I want to listen to music. Uh, I want to be able to wear nice clothes. I want the opportunity to have my own business. Um, I want to do something, you know, sort of creative, you know, and I was, you know, I was being an idiot as I was saying all this to her, that this didn't exist. And I mean, this was 1978. Okay. So a long time ago. And, and she leant across her desk and just said to me, have you ever thought of being a lady's hairdresser? Now, you know, I've got a brother that's a panel beater, a brother that's in a car upholsterer, you know, a brother that's a French polisher. I mean, you know, a dad that's a French, you know, no, I hadn't thought of being a lady's hairdresser. <laughs> you know what I mean? And I didn't fancy getting beaten up on the way home. So, you know, it, it wasn't, sort of in the mix, but you've got to remember this was 1978 and, you know, it was during that transitional period of barbershops were closing all over the world and the hairdressing industry was being reinvented as a unisex industry. And now here we are 2020 and it's morphed back to what it was then. But at the time there was nothing, there was no way I would have been a barber because barbers were like, you know, red, white, and blue pole with an old man in there with a white coat. And men at that point in their life, you know, we're talking 70s, all wanted to be like the Beatles and the Rolling Stones and grow their hair long. And so barbers couldn't do it. So men uh, went to ladies' salons, and that was the birth of the unisex salon. So this family friend of ours, he had, he was a barber, but he could see where the industry was going. So he opened what was a, a really cool looking salon. And um, I was in there getting my hair cut and he said, what are you going to do when you leave school? And this was two weeks, uh, sorry, wh what are you doing for a job? He said to me at the moment. And I'd been working with my dad and this was two weeks after I'd seen that careers counselor. So I'd left school six years earlier. And uh, he said, so, you know, what are you going to do with yourself? And I just, I hadn't reflected for a moment on what this careers counselor had said, but I just looked around and said, I might have a crack at this. And he carried on cutting my hair and, uh, at the end of it, he said, listen, if you're serious, he said, you're older than what we would normally do as an, as an apprentice. But if you're serious, we'll give you an opportunity, you know, and you can start next week. So I started that the next week and, and I never looked back and I knew very quickly that I loved it. And again, you know, this was a point in time where there weren't very many hairdressing magazines in the world, uh, but one that there was was uh, Hairdressers Journal. And we used to get Hairdressers Journal into the salon, you know, which was an English magazine. We'd get it in New Zealand and you'd flick through it. And, you know, it was just blatantly obvious at that point in time that, that any work that Sassoon had done just leapt off the page as being so radically different to anywhere else. And I just knew I had to go work there, that if I was going to do this, I had to go work there. So, so 1970, 1980, I moved to London and, uh, I eventually did a job at Sassoon um, and the person that was taking staff training at the time who gave me my job, incidentally, was your good self, which I'm ever indebted for. Uh, so, yeah. So, so, you know, and then, you know, at that point in time, you know, starting at Sassoon, I, I already thought I was pretty good at what I did, but I realized very quickly that I had to strip everything back because I knew nothing and I had to start again. Uh, if anything, I had lots of bad habits and, uh, you know, so, so that was good to, uh, to, to have to start again and be rebuilt from the ground up. But it's really difficult to get rid of bad habits. It's so difficult to unlearn anything. 
you know, because it's always in you, you know. So, um, yeah, so so that's a sort of a condensed um, version of, of uh, where I got into this industry and how I got into this industry. Well, I remember you being a cheeky little monkey. Oh, thank you very much. With a, with, a, <laughs> with, a, with a lot of energy and fire. So what do you owe your parents? Hard work, hard work, uh, humility, um, honesty, you know, putting you on the right road, giving you good morals, giving you good values, you know. Uh, I think if you can say that about your parents, there's nothing else that needs to be said, you know, that they give you a good start in life. They teach you right from wrong and they and they give you lots of love um, and, um, you know, teach you good values and, you know, wh- what are the and things in life that really matter. And so, you know, as I said, we didn't have a lot of money or anything, but do you know what? It, money's great. It's really good to have money and it's good to have the things that money gives you. But there's plenty of people that, you know, are no longer with us by virtue of their own choice um, who had plenty of money. It doesn't, it, it's not what, on its own makes people happy. Yeah. And so I think that my upbringing, you know, gave me a, a, a really good start in life like that. Uh, you know, definitely the importance of hard work and, and get your head down and get on with it. And, and no one owes you anything here. You've got to make it happen. So uh, going from New Zealand to London and then to Australia, where you opened your salons and were so successful there, obviously traveling was not an issue for you. And you've done some, and now back in the UK, um, you've really been, you've reinvented yourself. You've taken some very bold steps. You've been very courageous in what you've done. If you could edit your past, would you change anything? Um, No, I... uh... I mean, uh, New Zealand's a great place, an amazing place. Uh, I was born there. I lived there till I was, you know, 22 or something, um, nearly 23. And uh, But I always knew I didn't belong there. I, I always knew that there was more to the world, you know. Uh, I, you know, I'd, I'd been to Australia, and, and that was a, a step up as the wrong direction, but it's sort of the, the wrong description. But it, it certainly gave me a, a view of, yes, there is bigger. And, and there is more, you know. And then, uh, and then when I w- arrived in London, it was just jaw dropping, you know, because because Europe um, is so populated, it's it's so old. There's so much history. There's so much culture. Uh, New Zealand is at the other end. Of, I mean, New Zealand is one of the. Is, I think it's the only place that has declared itself COVID free. It's because there is a small population there. There's four million people. Um, it's a island or a couple of islands. Um, and it's a long way from anywhere. And so they were able to pull up the drawbridge and, you know, treat the people that had it and and, uh, and not let anyone else come in without, you know, testing and or going into uh, quarantine, et cetera. Uh, so, you know, there's a lot of good about places that are like that and isolated. But at the same time, I wanted more and knew there had to be more. And, you know, travel is the the most, you know, eye-opening phenomenal education you can possibly give yourself and uh, yes it's scary it's scary to uproot and, and move to the other side of the world and and set up a, a, another life and then after a period of time to uproot and move back again not to New Zealand but back to Sydney where I opened my own salons that's scary and then it was scary to decide to move there again back to the UK with uh, by that time I'd, I'd been married and divorced and had two kids and I'd remarried and then had another two kids so, you know, it's complicated, but, um, you know, it's never stopped me. And um, you pay a price for it. 
Uh, let's be clear about that. You know, I live in the UK. I have two sons who I love dearly, but they are in Sydney. I mean, they're not children. They're growing men now. They're, you know, uh, uh, 31 and 29. Um, but I miss them. You know, I miss their life. I miss seeing them. And, you know, we're, we're in touch in varying degrees. And I get to see them whenever I can. And, and they come over here whenever they can. But it's not the same as them being down the road. So, you know, you pay a price for that. And, you know, my brothers and sisters and my mom and dad, uh, who are no longer with us, but my brothers and sisters all lived in New Zealand. And, you know, when you do that, it, it's, it's done, you know, when you move like that, it's done with a lot of naivety and bravado of, of you know, the naivety of youth or whatever. But by God, you do pay a price for it. You know, Absolutely. like, you know, I mean, you're, you're the similar, you know, you live in America, your family are in the UK and you can't just pop down the road and see them, you know? So, um, do you, I, I say you don't do it lightly, but I think as a 21 year old, it was done lightly. It was done with all the bravado and enthusiasm of, of youth. Um, and, I, I don't really regret any of that. You know, from a career perspective, when you say to me, is there any regrets? Um, I, I don't believe in having regrets. Um, uh, someone said this once, and I've always remembered it. They said that there's no point in having regrets, that you, you make the decisions that you make at the time with the information that you have available to you. So there is no point in looking back at it and regretting. So, and, and I agree with that. That's how I feel, you know, but, if you're going to say to me, is there anything you would have done different? I, I, I think I had a, a couple of opportunities where I had one opportunity when I was at Sassoon to go and um, work in the Sassoon Salon in San Francisco as a creative director. They wanted me to move there. And at the time I said, no, there's no way. Why would I want to do that? You know, this is London. I'd much want to stay in London. There's no way I want to go to uh, uh, the United States. Um, in hindsight, you know, that's something I think I would have done without a shadow of a doubt. And who knows, you know, what direction that might have taken me. Um, another thing I would have loved to have done was I, I absolutely loved my time at Sassoon. You know, I was there for, you know, coming up for 10 years. And the whole Sassoon ethos and the Sassoon way of working is in my blood and it's who I am. And that's uh, the type of work that I'm drawn to. However, there's a part of me that wishes that maybe – I should have left Sassoon a couple of years earlier than what I did and gone to Paris or gone to Milan and, and worked in a different country that had a very different culture and a different beauty aesthetic because I love the beauty aesthetic that French women have. I love the beauty aesthetic that, that uh, Italian women have. Um, it, it's not better than, than, you know, the UK or American aesthetic. It's just different, you know. And, you know, we're in the beauty business, so I would have liked to have – a more rounded skill set to be able to dress hair and and do hair beautifully with my hands. It didn't involve scissors and combs, and and that is a huge shortcoming of mine. Um, and you know, I dabbled with doing editorial work, but it was never going to be my thing because I just didn't have that skill set. I didn't have the skill set, but I also didn't have the mentality for it. Some people are cut out for that. Some people aren't. I simply weren't cut out for that. And, you know, I very quickly realized that, that I didn't, but, uh, you know, it, it's, it's good to reflect, um, rather than regret. It's good to, uh, reflect, 
I think that's a great point, reflect versus regret. I think that's really excellent because in the reflecting, that's where we do our learns. And I've always thought that change either comes from inspiration or desperation, whether it's having your hair cut, looking for another job, getting rid of somebody. Um, so I think that's really very powerful. So I'm going to ask you a question that may surprise you. What is the worst job you've ever done? As a hairdresser? Yeah. As the worst job I've ever done as a hairdresser? God. Um when I was at Sassoon, I said I wanted to do editorial work. And uh, the, the general manager who I was saying that to, uh, uh, Nigel, who you know who I'm talking about, I say Nigel, um, he, he was like, great, well, we'll, we'll you know, make sure you get the opportunity to. Uh, but then the next day, he said, uh, you're doing someone's hair. Uh, you wanted to do it. Uh, we, we booked you on the job. And uh, this was in the... Um, 80s and Dallas was a uh, and Dynasty were really big shows at the time, and there was uh, one of the actresses in that is a lady by the name of Catherine Oxenberg, who uh, her mother uh, was Princess Elizabeth of, of Yugoslavia, but they lived in America, right? And you know she was one of those many women who were rumored to have had an affair with, with the Kennedys. Anyway, uh, I was down to do their hair, both of them, the mother and the daughter, Catherine Oxenberg and her mum. And they were staying in Claridge's uh, across the road from Sassoon's head office. And um, I, you know, was told on the, on the Wednesday night that you're, you're doing this Thursday at lunchtime. And I was terrified. I had no idea what I'd let myself in for. And there was an amazing editorial hairdresser who was no longer with us, unfortunately, a gentleman by the name of Ray Allington. Mm. And uh, Ray was a Sassoon hairdresser but had, you know, magic hands. Uh, and he was an editorial hairdresser and he happened to be, um, you know, he, he sort of worked at Sassoon, then left and then came back and then left and then came back more than once. And it was during one of the times where he came back and he was there and I went around and saw him. I said, Ray, I've been asked to do this job and I'm, I'm terrified. I have no idea what to do. And he said, get a model and I will, you know, and stay back tonight. I'll help you with it. So I went out on the street and I found this young lady who actually looked like Catherine Oxenberg, who um, I'm getting mixed up whether she was in Dynasty or Dallas, but she was in one of them. And um, she was a dead ringer for this girl. And she happened to also be American. I asked her if she would come in so I could practice her hair and set her hair because I'd never even set hair. So I, she came in and, and Ray got me and we got some rollers and stuff. And, you know, I heated, I heated rollers. I set her hair and, you know, he, uh, he helped me with all this and showed me how to brush it out. And I thought, great, I'm cool. And, and uh, uh, he told me that, um, you know, Princess Elizabeth had, had a short haircut. And I thought, great, I can blow dry a little short haircut. So I go off to Claridge's uh, to do their hair and they're staying in like, you know, the presidential suite. And I'm absolutely terrified. And to give myself a bit of credibility, I grabbed one of the assistants from the salon, a young guy, his name was Scott. And I said, I need you to come and help me hold my bags, you know, carry my bags for me so I look important. And he's just a kid. He's been at Sassoon for a couple of weeks as a trainee. Uh, before that, he'd been working in a little old ladies' salon in Yorkshire. And he comes with me and I get in there and I'm, I see the mum and I think, cool, that's going to be great. I can easily blow dry that. It's just a little basic layer. And Catherine Oxenberg, I, I knew what she looked like. I'd seen her on TV and I can set that. Ray showed me how to do it. It's all going to be good. And uh, so I put the rollers in and I brush it out and I'm thinking it's looking good. And she pulls out a weft. Now, you know, a lot of people listening to this will go, yeah, and... But, I mean, you know what I'm talking about, Sassoon, uh, 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 Vivian, at Sassoon, you know, a weft? What the hell am I going to do with that? She pulls out a weft of hair. 
And she asked me to put this in her hair to give it more volume and make it look thicker. And I, I'm just looking at this thing and thinking, I, I have no idea how to do that. Unfortunately, there's not a mirror in front of her. She sat like at a chair in the room. And I look at this kid that's there helping me, uh, 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 ostensibly holding the sections, and he just looks at me and he nods his head. I can do that. And I'm like, Eureka, you know, happy days. So I end up assisting him as he does like a, a little row of, of, of uh, pin curls. And then he anchors this, this weft of hair in, and, and she loves it. But I am dying on this job, dying, like, you know, of humiliation. And, uh, and then I, I think, well, I can blow dry the mother's hair. That's going to be cool. So I, I blow dry her hair. And she hates it. Um, and I, at the end, I, I said, is, is that okay? You know, and she was like, yeah, yeah, it's fine. She was very polite, very nice to me. But um, while I was, this was, uh, I'm still doing Catherine's hair. I was in the process of the rollers were cooling down or something. Um, <laughs> while I'm doing that, she disappears to the bathroom. And she comes back out of the bathroom. She's washed her hair. Doesn't say anything, but she's like sat in the same room with like wet hair. So yeah, that's my sort of hair horror story of like, okay, I know what I'm cut out for. I know what I'm not cut out for. Uh, but that, I didn't give up at that point, by the way. I did do a few more editorial jobs. In fact, I, I know I did at least one with you, uh, the Royal College of Art fashion shows where I, I you know, helped out on those. But it, it was not, I was not made for that area of the industry. And that's okay. And I think I wish a lot of people would recognize that, you know, the industry has many different faces and it all starts behind the chair, but you can branch off in many, many different areas if you choose to. There is absolutely nothing wrong with, I mean, I have friends, you have friends who are still behind the chair today and they've been behind the chair for 40 years and they absolutely love it. Um, and that's cool. That's great. For me, I, I sort of have morphed from one area of the industry into another and into another and into another. I never say it's better. I, I, I'm even hesitant to use the word evolved because it sort of implies that it's better, that it's the next step. It's, it's not necessarily the next step. It's just, I, I suppose it goes with part of my thing about, you know, me moving from country to country, whatever it is. It's like, I'm not afraid to reinvent myself and so, so become what a different person. What advice then would you give to somebody that is trying something different, trying something for the first time, they're stepping out of their comfort zone, it doesn't work. At what point when you're trying and it's not working, do you say this is just not right because I failed versus I didn't do a good job, but I'm going to be determined to make this work and I'm going to push through all the pain and all the struggling until I get there. So what is that divide? Because there's the gap of the knowing and the not knowing and whether you're meant to go down that path or no, that's not your best authentic self. Let somebody else do that. Don't be envious of that person. You now look on your own path. So it's knowing how to manage that. What advice would you give? If you really want to do something bad enough, you can do it. You know, um, going back to my story there, it was sort of irresponsible that I was dumped in the deep end like that. No, you should never dump someone in the deep end like that. Okay. So when I had my salons, if someone said, I want to do editorial work, I would say, great, before we send you out there on a job, we, you know, you have to do a presentation of models to us showing us this, 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 and this, not haircuts, but dressed hair. 
so that you recognize that they're now competent to go out there. Um, so, you know, just sort of backing up, it, it's that whole thing about fail to prepare and prepare to fail. Yeah. So if you want to do something bad enough, great, you'll find a way to do it. And some people, without doubt, have more talent than others, more natural talent. So some people, it is just who they are and th they can just do it. But most people um, have, to, have to learn it. And you can learn it like anything. So, you know, find great teachers. And, and these days, it is easier to find great teachers than ever before because of the technology that we have available to us. There's so much free education, et cetera, available to you. So, you know, if you're serious about it, find great teachers, practice, practice, practice. But, you know, I mean, so I should have come back from that job and I should have gone, right, I'm never going to let that happen to me again. And I, I should have gone out and bought a mannequin head and I should have gone to some classes and I should have got some people to show me stuff and I should have practiced and practiced and practiced and practiced on a mannequin head until my fingers bled. Do you know what I mean? And then jumped in again. And, 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 you know, realize that, okay, I'm better now, but you're, you're always going to, to a degree, be learning on the job and evolving creatively, but, but you need to get the foundations in place. I mean, I think that the foundations of anything, whether it's the foundations of cutting hair, I mean, you know, people will say to me, they probably say it to you, what is the secret of Sassoon? 50, 60 years, still going. And, and, and there's no great secret. It's fundamentals. It's like they drill and they drill and they drill and they drill. Um, I, I know you used to uh, do a lot of dance, if I'm right in saying we're going back a long time, but you used to be obsessed with the ballet. People that are good at the ballet or gymnastics or kung fu or, or cooking or whatever, they drill and they drill and they drill until they get it right. I, I have a friend who, who – um, went to the Cordon Bleu cookery school in, in Paris. And I'll always remember her saying to me, Anthony, for the first three days, we learned how to boil an egg. I'm, I'm like, how can you do that for three days? Well, it, it, it's like, you know, you could, you could go into a lot of detail about how to cut a bob, not on eight seconds on TikTok, like a lot of people want it to be today. You know, it, it, you could go into a lot of detail because it is the fundamentals and it's a, the perfection and the discipline that comes with it that makes a difference. So, you know, uh, never give up's the first thing. Find a good, a good teacher, um, you know, practice, 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 but also recognize, you know, that like, I, I always want to be the best, you know, at whatever I'm doing. Um, and, you know, I was at Sassoon and there's a lot of people there that had a lot more talent than me. And you reach a point where maybe you hit the ceiling and you go, well, this is as good as I am. This is how far I can go. And I'm never going to be as good as this person or that person. And so, you know, for me, it was what, what is the next step in my journey, you know, to evolve. Yeah. And so that, that's how it was for me. And, and that's okay. It's all part of that journey. Yeah. Excellent. Excellent feedback. So what has been your greatest victory? I mean, I, I've won awards. You know, I've, I've been lucky enough to win, you know, hairdresser of the year in Australia a couple of times, which was good. And, and lots of other awards there, you know, uh, but the hairdresser of the year thing was a big deal. Uh, and there was a, another one, the, the um, AIPP, the Association of the International Professional Press that they have every year in Paris. And I, I, I won that. And so in some ways, as a hairdresser, that was a real victory for me. Uh, but is it my greatest victory? I, I don't, I don't, no, I don't, I don't really think of it like that. It was a, 
it, it was another box to tick. It was unexpected uh, for that one in particular. Um, my greatest victory, my, uh, my greatest victory is yet to happen. Cool. <laughs> I love that. Well, it, it's, it would seem as though when you launch your online learning platform, um, that's going to be a huge victory because that is a, a monster and a different business all on, onto itself. So you know, we're all waiting to see what that's going to look like. Well, it's very exciting. Uh, and it is my, uh, my magnum opus. It's, uh, uh, it's been a long time in the works. It's not as a result of COVID. You know, I've been working on this really for three or four years. It is almost ready, the first phase of it. And it will be launched in September. So I, I'm really excited about it. So, yeah, and, and it plays perfectly into the world that we're living in because it's going to be very difficult to pack seminar rooms with people because uh, of what is happening with the economy and what's happening with social distancing. You know, the whole online learning thing is definitely, you know, the way of the future. Absolutely. So what drives you crazy? What, what drives me crazy is, is people, and I'm really careful not to say young people, okay, is, is people who they want instant gratification. You know, um, it's not, I mean, if, if we talk about, well, people, we live in a world now where you can get instant gratification. You know, how do I do this? Or, or you know, you can go straight onto YouTube and see how to do something. Um, and, and I mentioned TikTok, I had this throwaway line of like an, a, an eight second thing of, of how to do a bob or whatever it is. You know, people want it and they want it now because that's the world that we live in. But to become really successful at anything for 99.99% of people, it's about plain bloody hard work and being prepared to have the self-motivation, the self-discipline, the work ethic to put in the hours. And so it drives me crazy when people want and want and expect whatever the degree of success is they want without doing the hard yards to get there. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, which leads into this question. You you coach a lot of uh, salons. I'm sure you coach people who are successful that just want to be more successful. I'm sure you also coach people who are not as successful as they'd like to be. So there's a there's a difference in growing on success versus we have to change behaviors because we can't grow from this failure. We have to change how we're functioning. So describe to me your coaching process and how you work, first of all, with the salon that is actually failing. Okay. Uh, yeah. I mean, I have coaching clients from many different countries with many different sizes of business and different degrees of experience and different needs. I mean, there's absolutely everything in there. Um, and I, I, okay, I, I used to think that coaching was about having a program where, and so I, I actually did this because I, I never set out to be a coach. People started to ask me if I could help them one-to-one -one after they'd been in a seminar with a group. And so, you know, that they, I, I'd sort of like, you know, first of all, just had a couple of random conversations and so I tried to do what I could. And then I thought, okay, I need to put a program together. And so I decided it would be six one-hour uh, uh, telephone conversations. And the first one would be on, on them as an individual and their vision for their business and their management style. And the second one would be on, on money. And the third one would be on marketing. And the fourth one would be on, on, on team building. You know, that was the idea that I had. But the people who want coaching, they don't want that. And I knew that. I, knew, I very quickly found that out, that, that why people want coaching as opposed to sitting in a seminar room or reading a book or, or doing an online course even, is they want to be heard. 
They, they want you to hear them and their problem and their frustration, and they want help with it. And so when you put together a program like that, you know, you, I might be calling you, imagine we're doing the program and I call you and it's the second, you know, session. And it's like, you know, Vivian, today we can talk about money uh, because that's the second, you know, day of my coaching program. And you say to me, oh, no, Anthony, I just had three people walk out on me. And so I really need to talk about recruitment. You know, people who want coaching, they want you to help them with whatever their biggest problem is at that point in time. And so from a coach's perspective, that makes you feel pretty naked when you pick up the phone because you can't really prepare anything because you don't really know where you're going to be at with people. I mean, sometimes you'll finish off one call and there's an obvious link for what we're going to talk about with the next call. But that still doesn't always hold true because, you know, you never know what can happen in between those calls. So, so there is no hard and fast um, process except that, you know, that I, I suppose someone asked me recently if I could help them be a coach. And I'd read something once that pointed out something really obvious. And it was that, you know, there are different types of coaches. There are mentors and I'm more of a mentor than a coach. Um, a mentor is someone who's been there and done it. So a, a mentor says, well, I've had, I had three salons and up to 50 staff. And, you know, so I experienced a lot of the same problems that they had, but I had a successful business, uh, not all the time, but most of the time and managed to sell it at the end for a significant chunk of money. And, and, you know, as a business person, I'd done well. So I can be a mentor to people and say, Vivian, you should do this and you should do that because that's what I did. And it worked. That's a mentor. Now, the true definition of a coach isn't someone who tells you what to do, but they actually guide you on your journey for you to be the best version of yourself. They don't give you the answers. Um, so a lot of people out there that are coaches that, and really good coaches are not necessarily hairdressers. You know, they're people who, who get you to identify what your goals and ambitions are and to get you to identify what the blockages are in the way and what you need to do next to get there. So they don't give you the answers because they don't know the answers, but they help you uncover the steps that you need to take where you want to go. And that's a very powerful thing. So I, I think that I am a, a cross between a, a coach and a, uh, a mentor. Uh, but then, of course, you also have another category, which is maybe consultants, you know, who are different again, you know, so or, or like a consultant is an expert in an area, you know, um, so you might get a, a social media consultant to work with you and tell you how to, you know, put your social media strategy together. Um, so, yeah, there's semantics for a lot of people, but I think there's a lot of uh, a lot of truth in, in that description that, you know, I'm more of a mentor maybe than I am a coach, but I understand the difference between the two. And I use coaching tools to, to help people uncover what their goals and ambitions are and then use my, um, my experience to mentor them and tell them what I've done and what worked and what didn't work. Well, I'm sure you must come across um, salon owners and stylists who have their routine going, which has turned into a rut. Uh, they may be uninspired and they've actually lost direction. So how do you mentor or coach somebody when they have really lost their direction? Yeah, it's because they're rudderless, you know, loss of direction. I don't know where they're going. And whether you're talking about 
a salon stylist uh, or a salon owner is it's getting that vision back. You know, it's like, what's your vision for what you want to achieve and who you want to be? And, and sometimes when you talk about terminology, so I just use the term vision, you know, and if I'm talking to salon owners, I'll say, what's your vision statement? And sometimes people look at you like you're a bloody idiot because they'll, I remember someone said to me once, they said, Anthony, you know, I've got a hairdressing salon. I'm not IBM. I don't need a vision statement. And I said to them, look, all your vision statement is, is what do you want to do? That's all it is. It's like, well, what do you want to do? You know, and, and a mission statement, when you talk about a mission statement is how are you going to do it? And when you talk about your values, your values are just saying, well, what's important to you? So don't get hung up on the terminology. Vision is the what. Mission is, uh, is the how, um, encapsulated in a nice sentence or paragraph. Um, and values are what are the things that are important to you. So um, I always go back to the vision at the beginning. Um, and, you know, I, I remember when I opened my salons before I even got my first salon open and my, my attorney rang me, my lawyer rang me and he said, congratulations, you've, you've uh, been approved. The landlady's approved you and, uh, um, you know, it's, it's yours. And I was like, fantastic. I said, when can I go down there? And he said, well, call the realtor, but you won't be able to go down there yet, uh, you know, until you've got the, the keys and exchange contracts and all that. And so what did I do? Well, I went down there anyway. Do, do you know what I mean? Like I, I went down there, even though I couldn't get in, I went down there and I stood outside and I looked at the business and I could see the business. Now, this was a derelict shop, but that wasn't what I saw. I saw the vision for my business of what it would look like. And I emphasize what it would look like, you know, in, in terms of the lighting and the reception area and the chairs. And that was the visual part of me that in hairdressers is a very strong thing. And so that, that vision is like a magnet pulling you towards it. It's like, this is who I want to be. And this is who I want to become. It's like when I was at Sassoon, you know, I wanted to become an art director. I wanted to become that more than anything. And so that was my vision. And eventually I achieved that. And then when I reached a point there where I knew, well, I'm never going to be, you know, the European art director or the UK art director or the international art director, I just simply weren't good enough. I weren't as good as Mark Hayes. I weren't as good as Tim Hartley or many other people who were better than me. I can't have been that bad that I was, you know, I was a creative director at Sassoon. Uh, you know, I'm not putting myself down, but I knew that that's where I had peaked in, in that side of things. So I then at some level started to develop a vision in my head for, well, what's next? And you can call it vision or whatever, but it's like, what's next in my life? And I thought, I want my own salon. And I want it to be in Australia. At that point in time, I wanted to be in Sydney because my wife is from Sydney. So we moved to Sydney, opened up a salon. And, and, and then I wanted two salons and I wanted three salons. And then the next thing came along and it was like, okay, I want to do that. I want to be an educator full time again, uh, um, uh, talking about business. And so it, it's like, it's like the breadcrumb trail, but in reverse. I'm sort of following those breadcrumbs, those opportunities that are in front of me. And I'm prepared to cut my ties with what I had and to, to, to leap into the future. And sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. And it doesn't always work for me either. I'm not pretending it does. I mean, I've had like, you know, my challenges. Um, uh, but those challenges, and you said something right at the beginning of this interview about, about the journey or something. And, I forget how you worded it now, but the, the, enjoy the journey. Enjoy the journey for God's sake, you know, because and enjoy the struggles that go with the journey because 
they're beautiful things. I mean, you know, there's been many times in my life where I've had no money and, you know, like been challenged financially and, and, but I'm getting an education in another area at the same time. And, and I'm with other people that have also got no money and we're also having the same challenge and the same struggle and enjoy the struggle, enjoy the journey because it's a beautiful thing. Well, you know, that reminds me of uh, learning the lesson, but forget the pain. And sometimes people don't learn the lesson yeah. and they hold on to the pain. And there's a couple of things that you said that were very fascinating. I remember when I was interviewed by a journalist years ago about what my brand was. And I looked at him completely mystified. I said, brand, what's, what's that? He said, well, what's your style? You're talking about values and um, culture and, and defining who you are, finding that authentic mm. self. And I'm thinking, I have no idea what he's talking about. And I started to think about a brand of baked beans. Yeah. And I'm thinking, brand? Brand? What is that? And he said, you don't know what your brand is? He said, well, what do you do? And I said, I do pretty hair. Like, that's that's like, and I think some salon owners and stylists, when they're asked about that, they just go, well, I do hair, but there's another layer. And he said to me, no, no, no. He says, you don't know, do you? And I went, no, could you tell me what I am? Because I don't know. I said, I just try and make people look pretty and happy. I mean, really simple. And he said, no, he said, um, you have a classic sensibility, but you always give it an edge and you never compromise beauty. Yeah. So I thought about that and I thought, wow. If I put intention behind that, then my outcome would be even more amazing, right? And it was so powerful. So to your point about the branding and the values that you have, when you get clarity around it and put intention behind it, then it starts to have a whole nother level. And there's another thing that, that, that you said that really um, I thought was powerful about when you couldn't go any further, you would then moved on to something else. Vidal said to me one time, he said, he said, Viv, he said, there I am doing all these creative haircuts, all the geometry and so on. He said, I got to the point where I couldn't think about how I could reinvent myself anymore. I felt like I'd done it all in haircutting. So therefore I knew it was time to leave. And I thought that was a very, very powerful statement. Yeah. So as you're talking, I hear the passion. I hear the courage to do the different things that you do. But what I'm curious about is what is fueling that passion? Because it seems like it's relentless passion. <laughs> Hunger. Hunger. You know, like, like, yes, money, financial security, growth, improvement, um, hunger for more. You know, I want to be more. I want to have more. I want to be more. I want to do more. Uh, and I make, I never make any apologies for that. Uh, you know, have more, be more, do more. Hunger, uh, I, I suppose that is. And, and so where does that come from? Does that come from not having uh, much growing up? I, I, I suppose so. But but the, I, I'm not wearing my heart on my sleeve here. I mean, you know, 90% of hairdressers I talk to will talk about how they had a tough upbringing and there wasn't a lot of money in the house. Um, you know, that's not exactly a new story. Um, and, you know, to be clear, there was always food on the table and, and plenty of love, you know. Uh, so I never, you know, on one hand, I never thought of myself as being poor, you know, because I weren't. I had a rich upbringing in so many other ways, uh, but it wasn't in terms of, you know, expensive, you know, holidays or holidays period, actually, uh, or, you know, living in a, an affluent part of town and being exposed to, 
to good things, you know. Um, and so I miss that, uh, uh, you know, and, and I know I've missed out on that. I mean, I, uh, my, my daughter, I, uh, I have two daughters, um, and one of them, uh, I went to Paris the other week. She was there and we spent time. She's been working over there. We, she'd just come back from an internship. And her idea of a fun Friday night, right, uh, was, and she's a, a gorgeous young woman, uh, but her idea of a Friday night fun, okay, when she finished work, was to go to the Louvre. Uh, the greatest museum in the world, and she would uh, art museum, and she would spend every Friday night in there. Now, she's had a great education, and uh, you know, studies history of art, and and loves fashion, and just uh, absolutely is besotted with it. Now, I can walk through any museum, any art gallery that you want, uh, and I know what I like, but I can walk through it pretty damn quick. Like she'll she'll sit in front of a painting and stare at it for a couple of hours. You know, she'll, she'll make me stop and look at a sculpture, which I would have just walked right past and go, Dad, this is my favorite bit of art in the Louvre. And I just looked at it. And because she said that, I just looked at it and was like, oh, my God, that is amazing. I've never seen anything like it. It's just, I could see why it's just, it's just the most beautiful thing you've seen. Do not ask me what it's called. <laughs> it's called something, something to do with love, but it is just beautiful bit of sculpture. Um, and that is because of my lack of education, mm-hmm. okay, that I, I, I don't appreciate that uh, because I don't know what I'm looking at. Uh, and likewise, other people are like that with music or, you know, architecture or, or, or travel or whatever it is, you know, I'm rough around the edges. That's how I am. That, you know, take it as it comes sort of thing, you know, uh, and I'm not going to hide behind that. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, uh, I'm direct. I'm honest. I'm open. I'd like to think I'm humble. Uh, I'm respectful, but you know, I know that I don't have, I know what I don't have, uh, as much as I know what I do have. And I have a hell of a lot. You know, and I'm grateful for it. So who would play you in a film of your life? <laughs> well, who would play me in a film of my life? Well, there's, there's one person I, I, or there's a movie I really like because there's a particular speech in it, which I absolutely love. And if you've seen the movie and heard the speech, you'll go, yeah, I get why he loves that. And it's a movie called um, Any Given Sunday. And it has an actor who's one of my favorite actors of all time, which is Al Pacino. Uh, and in any given Sunday, Al Pacino makes a speech. It's a sport movie. And he's making this speech to this locker room full of footballers. And this speech is probably the most passionate speech you've ever heard in your life. If you, if you Google Al Pacino any given Sunday, it'll, it'll be there. Do you know what I mean? On YouTube or whatever. It is an amazing speech. And I... I, you know, okay, so when you were talking before about your brand, I just wrote down on a piece of paper in front of me, elegance, because to me, if someone said, what's Vivian's brand? One word, I'd say elegant, because you're elegant. Like, you look elegant, you talk elegant, the hair you do is elegant. You're elegant, if there was one word for you. Now, for me, if someone said to me, what's one word that you'd want to be remembered for? I'd I'd probably go passion. You know, uh, it's not an act. You know, uh, I, I'm not like this 24-7, you know, like with my wife or watching the TV. I'm, I'm not an, a raving loony. They might actually contradict that statement, but, you know, you get, you get the idea. I am passionate and I, I, uh, that's my brand. I'm passionate. And, 
if you want to add more than one word to it, I'd put in a few other words as well. But if there was one word that was your brand, I'd say me would be passion for you. It would be elegance. And I don't think they're bad words to hang your hat on. No, they're very cool, cool words. So, well, thank you anyway. Um, and yes, I think, I think that's amazing. So what I've taken away from our time together is the power of being authentic, the courage to be authentic, to find your own voice and to not give up uh, in the face of failure, but really look at that failure and ask, how can I approach that differently? If the door closed in your face, is there a window that you can open? And having the courage to explore. Um, you've also shared with us the importance of education and learning from great, great people. Um, that, again, we, we hear it many times, but it's really finding that voice. And we can start off with all the excitement in the beginning, start something, but it's having the ability to stick with it because in the very beginning, there's a there's a fascination. Oh, this is new. This is exciting. But the shine can wear off the apple really quickly. And when that wears off, uh, you still may not be any closer to mastery, which I think is the other thing that you've really shared with us today. So when we think about our audience who are predominantly salon owners, I'm sure there are many good reasons to be a salon owner, which I'd like to ask you about, and many misconceptions of what it is like to own a salon. And people say to you, Oh, Anthony, if I'd only known, but I didn't know that I didn't know. Mm. So tell me, first of all, um, what are the common myths about being a salon owner? That you make loads of money. As I said, you know, deal with salon owners all over the world. Some of them do really well financially, but by God, do they work hard, you know. Um, so, so, the, so the biggest, you know, commonality that people assume is that they're going to make lots of money. And most people, me included, open salons completely unprepared for the reality of what's involved in, in running a salon. And, and uh, you know, they're unprepared for it. And the, probably the biggest area, you know, is about the money, is about the financial, what it takes to run a business and, and to reinvest back into a business and to grow a business. And the whole financial area for so many hairdressers is, is all a bit of a mystery, you know, and so they sort of muddle on through it. But, you know, definitely that's where the biggest misconceptions are. And even though you can point out that it's a misconception to people right at the get-go, they still just sort of want to think that, you know, if they just get their head down and their backside up and do as many clients as possible, that it'll be all right in the end. Um, but it's it's often not. You know, it's, it's when you open a salon, you – the skills that made you a successful hairdresser are not the skills that are going to make you successful at running a business. And so many people assume that because they're good at cutting hair, they'll be good at running a hairdressing business. But, but that applies to everything. Just because you're a good lawyer doesn't mean you'll be good at running a legal practice. Just because you're a good accountant doesn't mean you'll be good at running an accountancy firm. Just because you're a good plumber doesn't mean you're going to be good at running a, a, a plumbing business or whatever. You know, so it's, it's sort of, I don't know if I've answered the question with that, but that's the sort yeah. of just this yeah. big thing in front of me that's just so obvious with everybody. So what are the attributes and qualities, skills, uh, mindset that you need in order to be a successful uh, owner of a salon? The, the, the mindset, mindset, you know, mindset, skills, attributes, uh, you have to, you're always, always, always learning. Do not sort of think that because this is what it was like, imagine I'm working for you in your salon and this is how Viv does it. So I'm going to go out and I'm going to open my own salon. I'm going to do it exactly the same way Viv did it. 
well, it, it, you know, what worked for Viv is not necessarily going to work for you. And what worked for Viv today is not necessarily going to work for Viv tomorrow. You know, the world is changing. My God, look at the changes that we're going through at the moment, you know, uh, and, and, you know, every industry, you know, is, is in a state of upheaval and the world will not be the same. You know, people need to really prepare for that, that the world is not going to be the same. Even if there's a vaccine tomorrow, it's not going to be back to business as usual like it was in 2019 and 2021. It is going to be different. It is different. It's changing dramatically, you know, right in front of us. So, so, so to survive, you have to be constantly learning and you have to be, you know, constantly are changing and reevaluating things. And that means everything from your, your business model to how you treat people and, you know, how you, how you motivate and lead and inspire people and, you know, how you, what are the services that you're going to offer and how much are you going to charge for them? And, you know, everything is, is constantly up for, um, Debate. Everything is up for change, and there's a there's and, and I see that as a very creative thing, you know. And there's a there's a thing which I was talking about to someone recently, and it, it's about Andy Warhol, and, and I just love this quote because Andy Warhol was a great artist with with paint, with photography, and and you know, mime, whatever, dance, whatever it was. He did lots of different things, you know, film, and and he was being interviewed, and the interviewer said to him. What is the most creative art form? Because you do all these different art forms. And his answer was the most creative art form is business because business is always changing, but it always has to work. And I remember when I heard that, it, it sort of gave me license to, to think about my business in a different way. Because before that, I thought of business as being dull and boring and that doing hair was sexy and creative. And it was like a switch got flicked in my head that business is creative and it's really exciting. And, you know, you use that word before authentic and, you know, I'm authentic now. This is who I am. I haven't always been like this, like as a, as a young man growing up in my twenties, thirties, whatever, you know, like everybody, you sort of try on different hats, you try on different personalities and, 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 you know, when I found who I were and giving myself a license to be the authentic you, that's a gift. That's a, that's important to acknowledge who you are and what you've got to bring to the party. And there's a great expression, you know, that, that I use with people. I say, be who you are just better, you know, because mm -hmm. we've all got something unique about us. Like, you know, yeah, and I think also that when you're looking at, at your business and saying, how am I going to do this? I think the better question to ask is who is going to do it? Because if you're asking the question, either you've got to go and learn it, which you may not have the time or money to, to be able to do that, but it is who is capable of doing it. And I think it's really important that we don't multitask so much that we are, we're all over the map. And then we're not doing one thing. So I think, again, it goes back to knowing your strengths yeah. and, and really understanding what they are, which, you know, you clearly explain in, in your work that you, you you present to everybody. I mean, your, your books on, you know, growing your business and growing yourself, it's really very much about that. And it's like who you are, but, you know, that, that you have to know, but it's like, who is going to actually do this? And, and, the, and knowing that there was only 24 hours in a day. Exactly. Exactly. And I know what I'm good at 
and I know what I am dreadful at. And you cannot, you know, master everything. So it's acknowledging what you're not good at and getting the right people in place to cover your, not necessarily weaknesses, but the things that you're either not good at and recognizing that, that you know, other people are, are bring that talent to the table. And, and, and that is leadership, isn't it? Being able to acknowledge, well, I'm good at this and I'm good at that, but I'm not good at this, that, and the other, and, and put people and systems and processes in place to make sure that those things are, are being done and being done properly to take the whole thing forward the way it needs to go. And I think it's okay not to be good at everything. Totally. It's okay. And totally. I think that when you truly play to your strengths, you will have great success. And also the happiness factor, because a happy workplace, you know, I always say to people, what are you intentionally doing around the happiness factor? What are you doing to elevate that? Because there are so many amazing statistics out there on happy people, their longevity, their creativity, their financial success, because they're seeking happiness. And I know that when we were at Sassoon's, happiness was not on the menu. It was, you're going to do great work and you're going to grind away and you're going to do the most perfect creations, right? And the, the smiley, happy, skipping and jumping around did not happen. I mean, at the bar, in the pubs maybe, but it didn't yeah, there. Yeah, yeah. So I, I know that you can't, you know, can't put a, you can't do, we can't look into a crystal ball and know what's going to happen because it's such a crazy world right now. Uh, but where do you see our industry going and how do you, what is your best advice to navigate through the stormy waters that we're going through? And, and what do you see as the, the salon of the 2021? You know, at the beginning of this COVID thing, I thought to myself, okay, the businesses that are going to get a real hammering here are going to be the, in the US are going to be the salon suites because I sort of perceive salon suites as being, you know, a business unit of one more often than not, and that they were unprepared for the economic reality of, of, you know, surviving this and, and, uh, you know, growing that they probably hadn't saved a lot of money. They didn't have any buffer and they were living week to week. And that, so as a generalization that they would be hammered really hard. Now, as we at now at this point in uh, July, almost, well, I think it's August tomorrow, um, they've actually, in a lot of cases, fared really well. And I think one of the reasons they've fared well is, you know, that in a lot of cases, and this is a false reality for a lot of them, uh, a lot of cases they haven't had to pay rent. You know, that, you know, because they're part of big conglomerates, you know, the, the rent's been stopped. I mean, that's sort of not the real world when you're a business, you're a business and the rent's got to be paid whether you're open or not. Um, and because of the fact that there is no vaccine and there is no social distancing, that there, sorry, that there is social distancing, that actually the suites are, are doing well. And there seems to be more people wanting to move from a traditional salon situation into a business unit of one, you know, with four walls and a wash basin around you. And, you know, it's better for the clients, it's better for the stylist, better for the staff member. Um, it, I mean, I, I, I never make any secret of the fact, I mean, I have some good friends who own, you know, suites, um, you know, Eric Taylor, Salon Republic in California. Um, you know, he's got an amazing business. He's a great guy and, and his business model is fantastic. But I, I never make any apologies for saying it's not my preferred business model. You know, my preferred business model was building a team. 
building a brand, building a culture, something that lasts and has longevity, you know, that, that's my business model. And, you know, that has been taking a huge hit everywhere, uh, particularly in the US, not just because of COVID, it had been taking a huge hit anyway. So it's sort of reset time. And I was listening to a podcast the other day, uh, very inspiring guy, a guy called Fabian Barron. And it, it was on a podcast called The Business of Fashion. I don't know if you listen to The Business of Fashion podcast, but I recommend it. And, and Fabian Barron is an art director, not, not, not a hairdresser. You know, he is like, he's the guy who's really been designing so much that we see in the world in terms of magazines and, you know, uh, just the way fashion and stuff is going, you know, fashion shows and magazines and, you know, layouts. He's, he's a creative genius. Anyway, on the Business of Fashion podcast, it's a, I think it's the current one out, you know, he says some things that are just really inspiring and insightful. And I, I love, you know, when people say to me what inspires me, it's how people think. And I love the way this guy thinks. And you might listen to it and, and go, I don't know what he's going on about. It's sort of, you know, he's rambling on about this and that. But, but for me, he just says some magic things. And anyway, the, the thing he said was that in this brave new world, that creativity will be our saving grace, mm-hmm. you know, that it, it, it's not going to be the bankers and the politicians that, that reinvent this world, it, it will be creativity in all its forms, like, you know, meaning different ways of thinking, different ways of making money, different ways of building businesses, different ways of treating people, whether we're talking about hairdressing salons or anything else. And, you know, as he said, the, the old format has changed and that we need to find new ideas. So fully expect to see new business models. And I have been harping on for a long time about a business model that I like the sound of, and I've never seen it in hairdressing. Um, and it is more of a cooperative, okay? More of a cooperative. So instead of like there being an owner and then 20 employees, because all the employees want to go off and open their own business, that, that you would have a business rather like a legal firm or an accountancy firm, that, that there are all these partners in it. And because it's it's you've got all these partners, it can get bigger. And because you're a partner, you get a percentage of the profit every year. And because the business is getting bigger and bigger because you're keeping all these people and maybe opening more branches and maybe opening your own product lines or whatever it is, that you really have a chance to have a small percentage of something really big. And so I love the idea of this you know, a business cooperative. And, you know, in the UK, we have a couple of examples. You'll be familiar with, with, uh, with both of them. One of them is called the John Lewis Partnership, which is a, you know, it's a, it's a, a department store where everyone who works there is a partner. They all get a share of the profits. Uh, mm-hmm. And under that banner of the, the John Lewis uh, uh, Partnership, they have the Waitrose uh, grocery chain. And everyone who works there is a partner in the business and they all get a share of it. And so, the whole approach with how they do their business and think about their role is completely different. And I've often said that I sort of see that as being a model for the hairdressing industry. And then just, uh, uh, what's today, Thursday, on Monday, I was having a, a Zoom conference with some people in China uh, about doing some Zoom webinars over there for salon owners. And I was talking to this, this, the guy who you know, I was talking to, and I said to him, what is the prevailing business model of your clients? And he said, well, 
most of the salons are owned by one person who owns about 30% of the business. And the other 70% is owned by the employees. Mm-hmm. This is in China, for God's sake. Now, so you wow. straight away might be going, oh, that's communism. Well, I, I suppose it's, it's some sort of socialism in some way. Yeah. Yeah. But wow, what a way to build business. And, you know, I, I just got some, some packing stuff delivered the other day. It was from a, a, a company called Kite, you know, K-I-T-E, Packaging. And if you Google their website, you know, kitepackaging.co.uk, on the packaging that arrived, like a box of bubble wrap for us, it just had written on the tagline at the, at the bottom, kite packaging, an employee-owned company. And so I think this is a movement. And, and, and I think that we will see that th- I think that this is a movement that would be really suitable for the hairdressing industry. Wow. And uh, I will be interested to see if that gathers momentum because big works and, and small works for some people. But face it, if you're in a salon suite, you've got nothing you can sell. You know what I mean? And, and you might have a salon suite today, but you're still going to have it in five years. Are you still going to be doing that for, in 20 years' time in that little room by yourself with the same clients? I don't think so. So, so I don't want to see hairdressing go back to like a small cottage industry and all the home hairdressing and all that sort of stuff. I want to see big, and I, I see that as being an amazing model for how it could be. Brilliant, brilliant vision. Well, I love it. Anthony, thank you so much for your time today. You've inspired me, and I know anyone listening to us today has been inspired as well. Uh, Keep on making a difference to everyone's lives because you add so much value. And whatever that passion is, when you put it in a bottle, I'll be one of the first clients to buy it. (laughs) Okay. Well, Vivian, uh, Miss Elegance, thank you very much. (laughs) You'll have that carved on your headstone now. (laughs) What's your name? Vivian Elegant McKinder. Right. <laughs> All right, Vivian. It's been an absolute pleasure, and thank you very much for you know for doing this today uh, with me. I mean, I'm usually on the other side of the microphone, asking people questions, and I love doing it because both of us are lucky in that we can reach out to people who will take our call and talk to people and have conversations to people, and you know we get exposed to information that is so good to be able to share it to help the people that come after us, because you can be guaranteed there's the 20-year-old version of Vivian McKinder out there somewhere, and there's a 20-year-old version of Anthony out there somewhere. And if they can be inspired by things that you and I say and do, well, then we leave the world a better place than how we found it. And that's all you can ask. Absolutely. Thank you. And keep on on doing it. (laughs) Thank you very much. (laughs) Okay. Bye, Liv. Bye. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you'd like to connect with us, you'll find us at growmysalonbusiness.com or on Facebook and Instagram at growmysalonbusiness. And if you enjoyed tuning into our podcast, make sure that you subscribe, like, and share it with your friends. Until next time, this is Anthony Whitaker wishing you continued success.